It is Michael Rechtenwald. How are you doing? Great. How are you? I am well, thank you. I am well. So, should we get? Let's get. Let's get into it. Let's get into what's going on. So, so what? Right, you are, as far as I know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Professor, on secularism. We're going to talk about secularism and also uh, woke culture and things like that, which I really like about how they sort of intertwine. So maybe we can start with what is secularism? Well, that's a very good question. Um, and uh, what it was, it was actually a movement that was uh, begun in the uh, mid-19th century in Britain. Uh, the word was actually coined by a gentleman named George Holyoke. George Holyoke was an atheist and uh, activist and a very strong um, promoter of uh, democratic rights. And uh, he basically was a champion of uh, working class uh, amelioration and uh, improvement. So he founded secularism actually as against atheism, not against religion. This is what's little known. And that is to say, it was a movement that was meant to be inclusive of not of believers and non-believers as well. Huh. And, and, and the main premise was, uh, is not, they put aside the question of, um, the deity and supernaturalism and metaphysics in general and said, these questions are not our, our issues. Our issues are the improvement, uh, of conditions in this life. This is what we're concerned about is this life. Uh, and so it was, uh, there was a bit of a split then between uh, two camps of secularism, one which was headed by George Holyoke, uh, and then there was another camp headed by Charles Bradlaugh. And uh, Bradlaugh really reverted back to the old uh, atheist uh, uh, orientation. And uh, he, he was a more of a firebrand, and he took over basically the secular movement. Now, secularism, that's worldview secularism. So there's another kind, of course, is political secularism. Um, political secularism is what we understand uh, to be the case in the United States. It's the separation of church and state. This came about through the, uh, the religious wars and uh, the resolution of those by basically states disavowing any particular religious creed or sect of Christianity. And that's really where the United States got its idea of basically no official state church. Uh, so How successful are... has that been? Because I can't, am I, I don't know enough about American politics. Has there been a, an atheist president? Could there be? Or a secularist? Uh, that, that's a great question. Probably not. Um, uh, at least not for a while. Um, there has been a lot of uh, research into this area, actually, as to whether, uh, when, in fact, uh, this kind of shibboleth, this kind of religious shibboleth that you had to declare to become a, a major political leader in the United States came about. And, and really, it came about with uh, the assassination of, I think it was uh, President McKinley and uh, by an atheist. And so after that, by an anarchist atheist, after that, uh, basically it became more or less a requirement uh, that you that you basically declared some a belief in God. Uh, and it was no longer acceptable to be atheist in American politics. This happened in the early 19th century, early 20th century. 
My, my inkling is that it would be easier for a Jew or a Muslim to become president than for an atheist. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's probably right. What do you that's think probably. that stems uh, from? Because there's a, a great, okay, there was this association of atheism with uh, several uh, uh, plagues, if you will. That's political plagues like communism. Uh, the association of atheism with uh, the commun with the Red Scare and the communist per uh, plague that was uh, really it was quite a real concern uh, in the early 20th century. There was a, a major uh, Red Scare about uh, atheists and anarchists. Uh, they were doing they were doing some uh, rather radical, violent things. They were bombing buildings mm -hmm. and and so forth and so on. So there's been that association of uh, uh, of atheism with uh, political scourges that w really Americans have attempted to uh, quell. I think uh, communism is a really interesting one, particularly the Bolsheviks or whatever. You know, um, so they were atheist. They were also, I think, by by your definition of secularist or how secularism began, they were secularist because they were about the improvement of humanity and mankind. But they were certainly religious, I suppose, right? Well, I would think that uh, atheism, and, and this is where maybe some of your viewers won't, won't agree, atheism becomes a dogmatic creed uh, when it, in fact, uh, declares this this absolute necessity that you know there's no you cannot have a belief in God. Uh, and, you know, I'm in a circle of uh, secular scholars still, despite no longer being affiliated with uh, NYU. Uh, I do have another academic affiliation now, but uh, mm -hmm. that uh, the, the uh, concern for um, secularism, uh, really, I would say that in the, in the Soviet Union, they were an officially an atheist state. Mm -hmm. So uh, in that sense, they weren't secular. And I've actually asked some communists why, in fact, they had to make it an atheist as opposed to secular. And uh, they just felt like you can't allow religious belief because, and that tells me that it's a competing creed. Uh, so likewise, it has to be squelched. Any kind of religious belief turns out to be a competing uh, creed with the atheist creed that is, avowed and promulgated by the state uh so you know i'm very anti-communist to be frank and uh the to me the fact that you had in the soviet union an atheist state and yet some of the worst political crimes in history doesn't prove that atheism is necessarily evil but it proves that this idea that religions have perpetrated some of the worst massacres in history is just not true if you look at uh, China and the Soviet Union and other uh, communist atheist states, uh, they committed some of the worst political atrocities in known history. And the most. I suppose that's that's the authoritarianism, isn't it? So, yeah. so what do you think about uh, you know the individual choice of being a, an atheist? Is that? Uh, that's, I, I totally think it's so uh, completely up to the person, and uh, I think that uh, as a real true liberal, which I am. Um, I believe that uh, people should have absolute uh, discretion on their creed, on their belief system, and have no state sanctions against any creed. 
Um, and then, you know, but we do get into questions of legality whenever uh, religious uh, orthodoxy seems to sanction the violation of uh, civil law. That, that becomes a question. So I, I won't necessarily go into that right now, but yeah. Do you subscribe to a religion yourself? Uh, yes, I'm a Christian. Okay. I, I suppose I don't have a follow-up there. I don't, I don't <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, what I, want to, what I want to say about that is that um, I believe there's a deep truth to Christianity that, that really is not necessarily a literalism, but it, uh, that there's something true about the cross and that is that it, it really tip, it really emblematizes the way life is on earth. It is it's a, it's a series of loss. It's a series of losses, and there's a lot of suffering. And the cross seems to be the symbol that best represents that, in my opinion. That's a very cheery outlook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel. I feel the same way, but I think I, I try and disguise it in a sort of a veneer of, of uh, I don't even know, insinc optimistic insincerity or something. But but yeah, it's all just, God, why why do we even do anything? Hey, what what is, um, you know, okay, so so just, just, just to, I guess, go on a bit more about religion. Where, where does, what, what is, okay, is, is Scientology religious because they have Lord Zenu? And if it is, is Nixium? Do you know about Nixium? The cult they didn't seem to. Ha they're very similar to Scientology and copied all the cult aspects, but they don't yeah. seem to have an actual folklore. Uh, so is that yeah. not then religious? I, I think religion is best defined, and, and this has been a very serious topic of debate. It's very difficult to define religion. Uh, some some would argue that the whole idea of secularism, which is putatively the absence of religion. It has been Western. The idea of secularism came from a Western standpoint where religion was seen in terms of belief, belief, whereas there's not necessarily the case that all practices that we might call religious uh, involve belief as such. It doesn't necessarily have to do with an ontological declaration about the existence of God or what have you. So I would say that anything that's ritualized practice and um, that uh, includes basically behavioral norms that are, you know, given by the, the sect or the group. Uh, this effectively uh, qualifies as religious practice. Practices, I think, is the best way to understand religion, not necessarily in terms of creeds, but in terms of practice. What's your your own background and story would you be able to just uh, fill in the viewer uh, a little bit about that well how far do you want me to go back <laughs> mm, just include all the most controversial and and uh exciting moments okay well yeah i was a marxist professor at nyu and uh so i was very much uh on the left and uh very much a marxist i i didn't teach marxism i I basically it was my avocation. My scholarship was in what we were just talking about, 19th century secularism and the history of science, actually, uh, British, British science. And uh, yeah, I came into conflict with uh, what I would call the woke cult in the academy when I criticized some of the practices that were going on there that I thought resonated with... Uh, you know, totalitarianism that I've studied uh, in different uh, past uh, contexts. And I came out and criticized this, and the 
the left came down on me at first the university uh, the university administrators faculty uh like a ton of bricks and uh, effectively ruined that that chapter of my academic career at nyu uh i was uh called a thought criminal. In effect, I, I was told that I had the wrong thoughts and uh, that, yeah, by this committee called the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Group, which I've since dubbed the, uh, the, diver- uh, the, uh, the Conformity, Inequity, and Exclusion Group. Uh, basically, they, they, if you don't hold this particular creed in the university, you're, you're basically out. And they made my life miserable, moved my office to the Russian department, uh, made me a pariah on campus. I was uh, shunned by uh, all the faculty, not the students. The students didn't care at all. They, lo- they loved me and I loved them. <laughs> uh, but then I settled with the university in 2019. And uh, since then, I've been uh, writing extensively on uh, the woke uh, culture, woke ideology, uh, it's penetration into every aspect of life, including business and uh, the economy. And uh, then um, also uh, dealing with basically power elite analysis now, treating the question of like, where does this come from? Uh, what is the benefit? Who's, be, who's, this, who's the beneficiary of all this? And uh, that's where I'm at right now. Uh, so, yeah. It's interesting well, when you say Marxist, um, but you also hate communism. I think no. a lot of people will have those two. And does that frustrate you to have those two as synonymous? Well, I was a Marxist. I'm no longer a Marxist. Uh, hmm. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I totally avow the free market. And uh, I think that uh, freedom is hinging upon, hinges upon uh, property and property rights and the protection of property. And that Mar- uh, uh, communism violates the very first premise of ethics and that is property in oneself, and and thus it's unethical to the to the nth degree. It's it's unethical. It starts with theft, and it continues with theft. Um, hmm. So it it does frustrate me that there are many different sects and uh, uh, milieus of Marxism that people on the right don't understand at all. They have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, there's there's a lot of divisions within it, and I was a libertarian communist. That is, I did not believe, I did not uh, approve of the Bolsheviks, and I thought they were tyrants and totalitarians. And so I was against totalitarianism, but a Marxist, uh, and uh, thought there was another way. But I'm not, I no longer think that. Is there a case for scrapping the way we talk about politics with the left and the right and just going to that sort of authoritarian, libertarian way? Yes, absolutely. That's that's a great point. I think the, the left-right divide is uh, rather mistaken in, its, in many ways, except to, to the extent that people avow leftist and rightist views. But really, the left-right is really about, I think the difference is really between authoritarianism and liberty. Uh, uh, totalitarianism and libertarianism. And to me, and I've often said this on, on my website in various essays, I don't care uh, about left, right. I care about, are you a totalitarian or not? And is your, is your system a totalitarian one or not? I'm opposed to all forms of totalitarianism, including communism, fascism, uh, socialism, uh, woke ideology, uh, political correctness, all of it. Mm. 
I would say I think I'm also I'm probably a libertarian, but without being an extreme one, because I've spoken to some people who want just everything libertarian. And yeah. then there was this town in New Hampshire where they did that and nobody paid for to have uh, bear patrol. Do you know about that? Yeah, yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah. I yeah, I agree. That's the anarcho capitalist view. Um, I'm a minarchist. And so I don't go that far. I don't believe that we could do without a state entirely. I just believe in a minimal state, a minarchy. Uh, and that is to say, you know, the state should be there to protect property and rights and leave the rest to the market and to individual uh, desiderata. You wrote Springtime for Snowflakes. Um, and we talked about sort of the woke stuff happening. And I think, you know, everyone knows that's happening on, on campus. Now, some people will we'll think that's a good thing so and mm -hmm. and at its most basic element woke okay well, what does that mean everyone should be tr treated equally that's what people say it is now why is woke a bad thing okay well so the woke ideology uh is not about equality in fact i would argue that it's an inversion ideology that means to take the so-called existing hierarchy and to up invert it and flip it on its head so that the top becomes the bottom and vice versa. This is why, and this is perfectly explicable, why you see this so-called race to the bottom to be the most oppressed, to be considered the most, you know, uh, sub subordinated subject in the, in, the, in, in the social hierarchy. You see a race to the bottom because the bottom is actually the top. So it's an inverted uh, hierarchy. Um, and secondly, the other problem with it is, it is it is a means of destroying other people's rights. It isn't just about uh, the rights of the oppressed or the subordinated. It aims at taking the subordinated and using them as a means to silence and uh, abrogate the rights of other people. Uh, so it's a very much a vengeance or revenge ideology. It's an inversion ideology and a revenge ideology, and it's not egalitarian at base at all. Mm. I, I think it can also that that does remind me of the Bolsheviks a little bit, the woke culture stuff, and it's just mm -hmm. also and, and maybe it's a privileged. I, I speak of this from, and I'm, I'm using their terms, I suppose, but from a privileged position. But yeah. uh, it, it does rid the world of joy uh, a little bit. I'm, I'm reading. I'm, I'm rereading my favorite ever book, which is called A Gentleman in Moscow. Do you know that book? Yes. Yes. I haven't read it for quite a while, so I don't have very strong memory, but. I just love yeah. it. I love it. And it's just about the, you know, the Bolsheviks taking charge and just, just stripping joy. And okay, you've got to be able to eat first and all these things before joy becomes, you know, you're able to enjoy the theater and art. And there's obviously a lot of art and beauty and religion as well. I'm not religious myself, but yeah. you know, that stuff. And that, that's the first sure. stuff that, that falls away, right? Absolutely. There's this kind of uh, this this kind of attack on everything, and use that term privilege. And that's an important term here, because what it is is they figure everything that you have, uh, whether it's your you know in, in ter inherent endowments of biology, or whether it's uh, inheritance in economic in monetary or you know other terms like that. All of that is accrued to you by virtue of privilege. None of it is your right. And likewise, there's every real reason to take it from you. And joy and appreciation and being able to have 
to actually relish life. And this is where Nietzsche comes in very well because he talks about, he writes about this to a great extent, about how they really want, it's a vengeance ideology that wants to, you know, immiserate everyone uh, because there's this belief in, you know, that basically misery is, is is the main uh, substantive condition of people, and likewise, they want to impose it on uh, on others. So, indeed, I suppose I suppose we must be wary of a society that's at the opposite end of the spectrum, where there's a huge wealth gap, and uh, the the poorest in society have no social mobility, no chances, nothing to aspire to. Well, I think that's a function of monopolies, and um, it's it's. Uh, I don't think that's inherent in uh, the free market. I think that happens by virtue of collusion with uh, with corporations and the state, which then gives them privileges and then fixes monopolies. Uh, and that likewise fixes prices. It blocks competitors. It keeps people from upward mobility and so on and so forth. But I don't think uh, inequality, you know, so-called economic inequality, I think it's a red herring for the most part. Because there's nothing wrong with economic inequality per se, especially if the rising incomes of you know if if even the bottom's income rises with the with the uh, with the market uh, with the development of the market, which has been the case. You know, uh, I studied 19th century uh, 19th century working class conditions, and uh, this there was a vast improvement. Uh, from the beginning of the uh, Industrial Revolution to the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. There's been an enormous improvement. And so this was a function of the market and industrialization and and capitalism, frankly. Uh, Capitalism lifted uh, all boats. And uh, the the existence of inequality is, is a red herring that's used to indict capitalism for anything. Uh, I, I agree that monopoly capitalism is definitely uh, negative, and it tends towards socialism at that end of the spectrum because socialism is nothing if not a monopoly over everything, including all production. So the further we get away from free markets and into monopolies, the closer we actually get to socialism. In your book, um, what are some of the most egregious examples of wokery at NYU? Okay, I was I was thinking you were going to ask me what are some of the most egregious examples of what I might have done <laughs> to <laughs> elicit the woke mob. <laughs> um, well, as well, yes. Um, well, let me just—I'll just give you one example of the latter because I think it's humorous. Uh, this woman I worked with at a uh, historically black college and university at uh, at a certain college that I won't name, uh, basically uh, stole this idea that I had of. Uh, of, uh, of a, uh, a kind of intercollegiate cooperation between our university and Duke University, which was a much wealthier school. And so if we could get them to help us and this kind of cross-pollination between the two schools that would really boost our program, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, this woman stole it and I wrote an email. I thought it was to my friend saying, this is where the blank steals my idea. And, um, uh, I actually f- sent this to the woman herself who stole it. It turns out she's a black female with one arm. So I basically, oh. <laughs> I basically called inadvertently a black female with one arm, uh, a rather derogatory term. But anyway, what was, the, was, what was the ter- what was like the first letter of that term? What was the fallout from that? 
No, the first letter, like, because I, I don't want you to say it on it's Sean's a B, channel. A B, B. Okay. Okay, a yeah. dog, a female dog. Yeah, 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 that's right. Okay. I, I didn't want to yeah. use the term on here. But um, but you didn't do that knowing that, you know, and, and trying to insult her for... No, those, I had nothing yeah. to do. I did not want to insult her, nor did I want it to go to her, nor would it have anything to do with her race. It had to do with her stealing my idea and then running with it and making a big deal out of it when after she squelched it when I brought it up. So, you know, it was just a matter of like, uh, you know, this kind of intellectual theft. And I just pointed it out. Uh, some of the most egregious things of uh, uh, wokeness. So I left the campus before this whole outbreak became even worse because it, it really only started in 2016 where they were shutting down speakers, instituting bias reporting hotlines, uh, uh, instituting these safe spaces. They had these safe spaces where uh, with the campaign and election of Trump, they, they had these safe spaces for students where they had, mm. they literally had uh, pacifiers and things like this, uh, pacifiers and petting animals to quiet and quell the anxiety of these people after the election of Trump. So these were some of the most ridiculous things. But since then, it's been even worse where, Basically, uh, you got you have to the point where having right answers in math is deemed uh, white supremacist and, uh, uh, you know, uh, rigor in, uh, in engineering is deemed phallocentric and all kinds of absurdities that are effectively gutting the university of whatever, uh, whatever worth it had. Uh, I think uh, they've basically destroyed it at this point. Did you write your book um, hoping to convince or, or sway? And I, and I asked just because, you know, the title is obviously quite inflammatory, uh, just the word snowflakes, which I would add, I, I don't think when, when I, I wonder about battling against sort of the wokeness with the word snowflake actually plays into their hands, because I think a lot of these people want to imagine themselves as, as like emp overly empathetic people when actually well, they're, they're bullies. What I, what I say about that is I call them snowflake totalitarians. Because what they do is they use their so-called fragility, their supposed fragility and sensitivity as a weapon against other people, against mm -hmm. their rights of speech, for example. It's the way of shutting people down. Like, he hurt me. He must be silenced. You know, so this is just a this is just a ruse that they use to silence people. Did I write it? I wrote it as a serious indictment. Uh, for the in, uh, for the most part, it was a serious indictment of the direction that the university was headed, and I mean by university, the whole academic world, and it was meant as a way to try to stave it off, to try to redirect it, to try to give it a different uh, direction. And what I argued in the end was that there's no way that social justice or wokeness should be squelched or crushed it should just be one of many beliefs, but not the official belief of the university system. You know, you can have any belief you want, but it shouldn't be running the, the roost is really what I was saying. Uh, so as a secularist that I am, I believe in, in that sense. I'm a secularist in the sense that I believe in a pluralism and people should be allowed to have whatever views they do hold. The problem is when it becomes totalitarian and, it, and it's imposed on others, and without which they can't uh, they can't survive in that culture or atmosphere.
Do societies generally move uh, like the waves a little bit every 10, 20 years, become a bit more authoritarian, then a little bit more libertarian? Or are there historically major shifts and this is something we should be concerned about? Well, I think um, I'm not a believer in like the pendulum theory of history where things swing back and forth. But I do think that what happens is um, the excesses of authoritarianism eventually lead to uh, a backlash against it. Uh, and one of the things I would warn against that is not to institute a new authoritarianism in order to squelch and suppress the other one. So it's a very tricky situation and it invites, it invites like Nazism and things like that because you see the, you know, the culture being overrun and it's becoming more socialist, totalitarian and uh, degenerate all at the same time. It invites responses like Nazism. Uh, and this is a problem. So we have to find a way to counter it without becoming it. Um, mm. You know, that's the key. That is the key. Michael, where would you want to send people maybe to your book or, or other places to check out? Uh, you can see all my books, uh, all 12 of them up on michaelrechtenwald.com. And all my essays are up there for free. I don't charge like on Substack. The only thing I charge for is my books. Interviews are all up there. Uh, and many other things you'll see uh, on my okay. website, michaelrechtenwald.com. Fantastic. People, please do support Michael, support our guests that help make this channel happen. And Michael, uh, thank you so much. Have a lovely evening. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you, Andrew. You too.